Hello. Welcome to Content Minds. My name is Ryan Broderick. And I am Vengeance. I am the Knight. I am a two and a half hour long movie. It's three hours. You know that this is the this movie is very long. I did not go to the bathroom in it uh, once. I did. I think I may have gone twice, but just to get out. I'm very proud of myself. I, I ate an entire bag of gummy bears and half a large popcorn and I drank a beer and I still did not go to the bathroom. And you know me, I go to the bathroom a lot of movies. So it held my attention. Yeah. Um, and I hope the people listening to this won't go to the bathroom during our podcast either. Let's get into it. <laughs> oh, wait. Did you say your name? Yeah, no. Hi, I'm uh, I'm Luke Bailey. And I I just had a uh, rainbow chard and parmesan frittata with sourdough toast. That has nothing to do with this whole bit. But I, I that sounds no. nice. That does sound but nice. But I think, I, I think it was a nice kind of uh, stereotype setting. Yeah, fair enough. All right, let's get into it. So this week on The Content Minds, we are going to take a big look at an idea that Luke actually coined a couple weeks ago that really seemed to hit home. I mean, I, I, I mean, we should say, yeah, like, I did not coin it. Everyone has this feeling. I'm just trying to name it. That's what coining means. No, no, no. You should coin a, a concept. It's not co- it's, The concept exists already. You coined just, a term. Yeah, I coined a term. Okay. okay. Well, Luke coined a term that we're calling structural dissonance. And it is, well, give a quick definition before before we go on with the show. Structural distance is the feeling you get when you look at something that is where the 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 form, the con- the form of how you consume the content, be that a tweet or a TikTok or a podcast, uh massively uh conflicts with the f- the uh the, the form. Yeah, the form of how you consume it conflicts with the content. So the content can be very, very serious or very lighthearted, and then it conf- conflicts with the, the the way you're consuming it. So it is it is it is TikToks of genocide is what we're what we're saying here. Okay, great. We're gonna put a little little bow on that real quick, and, and we'll come back to that. But first, hey Luke, how was crypto this week? Please, 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 don't buy an NFT. Please, please, please don't buy an NFT. Crypto was a mess, like in a good, fun way for once. Like I enjoyed the kind of the crypto insistence that actually everything's fine when it really is starting to not feel fine. So what do you mean? Well, the big one that jumps out for me, and this is, uh, I mean, number one thing is that the search trends around crypto have collapsed, which obviously part of my job, I'm aware of what these, these things are, but it means that a lot of people people are a lot less interested in crypto than they were three months ago. Uh, I don't know if that's kind of, we were a little bit in like pseudo lockdown three months ago and now it's not and everyone's kind of like, oh, I'm outside. I don't care about this fake money anymore. <laughs> but it also feels like there is definitely a turning against it. And I, I'm, I'm, what I said months ago was I thought NFTs were going to be really bad for crypto. But as a really clear example, Sorry, there's going to be a lot of football in this bit. <laughs> um, oh, okay. So wait, you're you're basing this off of football crypto, which is a very special look, I, kind of crypto. We've been doing this podcast for 
closing in on two years now. And what I've discovered is that football content and people who are involved in it is the early warning signal. That is the canary very consistently. In a, in a very Yeah, it's like it's it's everyone is already tribal. Everyone's already angry. Everyone's already got emotions and everyone's already kind of having fun with it. And that's kind of the space. So stuff arrives there, it happens really quickly and then it happens ev- everywhere else. But there is the ex-Chelsea captain and I, th- I don't think it was ever England captain, but Ch- ex-Chelsea captain and England defender John Terry, uh, who is a bad person for many reasons pertaining to his personal life, but who also got very into promoting a particular version of a crypto asset, which was uh, the Board Ape Yacht Kids Club or the Yacht Kids Club, Ape Yacht Kids Club, one some combination of like four random words that turned into a thing. Okay, but basically, but it wasn't the official one. I don't think it was the official one, no. But it was kind of like a tangential one. And he was very promotional of it and got a bunch of his other kind of uh, friends in the game to also promote it. Uh, this week, it was revealed by Joey Durso at The Athletic that that has dropped eight by 90% in value since he was promoting it. And everyone except John Terry has deleted their endorsements of this stupid thing, which I think has happened an awful lot. And I think is happening with more and more of these NFTs which I think is a tricky situation for the NFT and crypto market so, to be. talk that through a bit. What do you mean? I think the problem is, is if you get burnt once on NFTs, you're not going to go back. Because I, I, like if it, you may, or maybe, yeah, if you get, you buy something for a pound and it turns out to only be worth one pound 15 or a hundred pounds, like sure, maybe. But that's not what's happening here. Like these things are relatively valuable or, or theoretically relatively valuable and people are buying them. They're not going anywhere. And then people are kind of forced into not, having a thing and i think the proliferation of nfts and nft collections like don't get me wrong i think the board eight yacht club would always have a degree of value because it was kind of the first big one but i think each new one reduces the value of everything coming behind it there's not going to be a i mean i say this that i was going to say there's not going to be a, another nft collection that comes out in three months and it turns out that's the one that's worth a lot of money however it is relatively true that Bitcoin was the first cryptocurrency, but Ethereum probably more valuable now, in, in depending on how you look at it. You know, Shiba, Doge, all this stuff. Well, we are recording this on Tuesday, March 15th, and Ethereum is not having a great time. No. But I get, I get your point, which is that like, the, and this is actually kind of the problem with applying, let's say, logic to crypto, uh, which is that like, by all proper logic, like it should be done. It should be over. NFT should be over. Everyone's been scammed. Everyone's realized it's like a bunch of bullshit. But like all it really takes is like one more dumb idea to catch on to go through the whole cycle all over again. Yeah. I just think that NFTs were such a specifically dumb idea that they've really affected everyone's confidence in crypto more generally. Yeah. And I agree with you. Actually, a lot of the like diehard Bitcoin will save the world libertarian like people I follow are all very angry at NFTs because they feel like NFTs have set back their thing considerably, which is true. They, I mean, they have. Crypto is synonymous with NFTs now and NFTs are fucking dumb and like worthless and have like made a lot of people lose a lot of money. And so that's going to transfer over to people thinking like, should I buy Bitcoin? It's like, well, I lost a million dollars on my lazy lion JPEG. So <laughs> why would I buy crypto? So for anyone who's really hoping that like, there's going to be a, 
Bitcoin exchange on the moon in 50 years. Like, yeah, NFTs have kind of screwed that timeline up a bit, I think. Yeah, and I, I think also what screwed it up is the fact that while Ukraine has been happening, crypto has not spiked. And it should have done very well. I find this really interesting. And like, once again, my main thing is like, I am not against the idea of digital assets. I try to keep an open mind. I've messed around with them. I've bought them. I've sold them. I've traded them. I've, 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 I've tried to, I've interviewed a lot of people in this world. I've tried to like have a healthy amount of skepticism to like understand what's going on here. And every time something like this happens, like whether it's inflation or the invasion of Ukraine, like all of these Bitcoin guys come out of the woodwork and are like, this will be, this is when like Bitcoin will like show its true colors or like, you know, this will be when Ethereum proves its worth. And it's like, it still hasn't happened. It's, and, and I, and, and the other thing that like I think is worth pointing out is that like Bitcoin is not populist. Bitcoin is not good for a retail investor. The majority of Bitcoin is owned by like, the richest institutions and millionaires and billionaires in the world. So like, it's not moving. It's not attached to viral information anymore. It's not like GameStop. It's not like AMC. It's, it's like this gold that like billionaires are storing their wealth in. So it's not reacting to anything. Yeah. And also it is essentially a permanent inequality because if you join now and buy 0.001 of a Bitcoin, your 0.01 of a Bitcoin, if it quadruples in value, is still going to be a scintilla of what the person who got in three years ago and bought one Bitcoin was getting. Right. So so, you're locked into this permanent digital inequality. Like you can't be the smartest person in the Bitcoin market and be like, yeah, no, I've I've got more Bitcoin. I've I've outsmarted you. I've outworked you. It's like, no, you're just, you're going to sit there and wait. Like yeah, sure. Okay, I guess technically you could you buy a dip and then buy a and then sell a spike, and you could probably do it. But like, it fundamentally is just entrenching inequality in the market in a way that even weirdly, real money doesn't. Yeah, I mean, also if you like, if you look at like the last year in particular of Bitcoin prices, like at this time last year, the price of Bitcoin was at fifty five thousand dollars, give or take, for one Bitcoin. It then dipped all the way down to 29,000 at the beginning of August. And then it spiked up at uh, the middle of November to 69,000. Nice. Uh, And now it is basically hovering around low 40s, high 30s. That, in my mind, just means that like the same people are buying and selling the dips and spikes. Yes. To basically just move the same amount of money around. And like... That's just not anything. That's just like crazy levels of market manipulation to basically launder money or inflate like corporate earnings. Like, and the fact that it's happening almost to the calendar every three months. Wait, did I do that math right? August to, yeah, every three months. Oh, wow. Good for me. I did that math right. Like the, that, that to me is just like, oh yeah, it's like, it's time to like buy and sell the dip to make our quarterly earnings look good. Like that's all that's happening. And so... Like, that's what's bumming me up because, like, what I thought was interesting about crypto and NFTs and all of this stuff was, like, I mean, one, it's extremely funny. Everything that's happening inside of that world is so dumb that, like, it's very funny. Other than the scams, which are very sad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. But it's funny. And it's interesting. It's new. It's something to, like, it's something to think about. But, like, I've, I've become very disillusioned with even, like, the premise of it over the last year because i'm just like oh like i'm just watching a bunch of tech companies move their earnings reports around like that's so boring 
Like that's yes. not that's not fun. It's not it's not anything like GameStop. GameStop was a riot. I loved that. This is just like boring shit. Have you been following the and this is gonna be a very specific thing. Have you been following the Doodles event at South by Southwest? The Doodles event at South by Southwest? No, I have not. Yeah. Okay, so this is I think my most like I've been watching this and and the more I watch it, the more I'm like, yeah, no, this is it is absolute garbage. All of this stuff is absolute garbage. So Doodles is a NFT company that has come up with a type of NFT. Those NFTs are broadly speaking like cartoon children, but they're all doing fun things. That's the gist of the collection. Now, at South by Southwest, they set up a an admittedly pretty big event that was like a huge warehouse. Hang on. Uh, let me... I'm going to drop you a tweet for it in the chat. Yeah. So they set up like a big warehouse and it is, it's big and that's cool. There's like a fun entrance, which is themed around doodles. Okay. And it's like, cool, fine. But once you kind of look at what they're retweeting and they're retweeting people being at their event and those people are mostly holders of one of these NFTs. And then you start to watch it and you're like, what is, what are you getting here? Like, I'm going to drop one tweet here, which I, I can't stop thinking about. And I'll describe it. It is a woman who is a holder of an F- NFT, realizing in real time that her NFT is not worth anything. Oh, wait. So she's... So basically, she swipes her NFT on a some sort of holder. She swipes her NFT and uh, uh, a tube goes up and reveals a printout of her NFT, which she looks oh. at and goes and sort of, I think, I think that's what it is. I actually can't quite tell what it is, but she swipes her NFT and then is given a printout of her NFT. And she's like, oh yeah, that is, that sure is a thing. I love that. the I love, I love that the, uh, the top reply is <laughs> the top reply is from the president of Shopify who has an NFT hexagonal profile picture of who just writes next level. And it's like, What's next level? Like your your QR code gave you a piece of paper out of a machine. That's not yes. anything. That's nothing. Yeah, it looks like she's getting like a like a like a Wonka buck, like a Willy Wonka yeah. dollar or something. That's kind of what it looks like. And if you it's, go to the rest of this thing, and like this event looks fun, fine. There is a digital spray can event which you can only use if you have one of the NFTs. Uh, there is a food delivery thing which comes out on like little rails and then it appears and you take your food out of this little cart which you can only get if you've got one of these nfts and there's some paint cans that are related to nfts somehow and there's another area where what you can do is you can walk in you can scan your nft and it'll show your nft on a screen next to you oh my god do you remember do you remember there was an era and it was probably I only caught. The I think I know exactly of, what you're going to say. I know. I think I know exactly where you're going with this. Go, go, go. I only caught the late stages of it, but it was about because I got a bit of it when I used to work in like advertising, not media. And yeah, there was I know exactly what you're going to say. You'd go to like an event, and someone it would be like yeah. it would be AOL or I don't know someone someone yeah. who had like a bunch of money and was like, hey, we're going to bring all these people to this cool place, and they'll be like, hey, you come in, get your ticket. What you can do with your ticket is you can do this stuff, and everyone would walk around and be like, that's cool and you'd like swipe something and a thing would happen you'd be like that's cool and you'd spend like you know 20 minutes doing that and you'd be like cool now i'm going to go to the bar where everyone is because 
this is this is for children and it's fine and fun and it was a fun way to spend yeah, 20 in, minutes <laughs> in 2012 in particular there were all of these like m- companies and a lot of times they were like toy companies or something like it was really weird it was like it was either like nerf guns or like the aol homepage relaunch it was like these yeah. like horrible corporate events that would go and they would mass invite everybody at like all of the digital media publishers, you know, like college humor employees were like a huge uh, staple of these kind of events. And they would give you like a cool lanyard and they'd ask you to put like your Twitter handle on it. And they'd give you like a free Brooklyn lager or like the worst cocktail you've ever had in your entire life. Oh, so in the UK, all the drinks were free and that was an important element of why they were No, no, they were free in America too. And so you would try to get as like blind drunk as humanly possible and there would be like a bunch of weird games for children to play and then you would like inevitably go to a real bar after uh, where things would like spiral out of control on on your thirsty Thursday night. But like it was all just like prepackaged horrible startup capital fun like that's what this was it was like it was it yeah. was ridiculous and this is what it, this is but with web3 it was all stuff it was all stuff you looked at and you thought i have maximum everyone in this room has gotten like 10 pence worth of fun out of this thing and this probably cost like half a million quid yeah yeah and it was like no one has and i remember this. like there was always like the most miserable woman with an ipad at the door trying yeah. to figure out like if you're if you signed up with your personal or professional email <laughs> uh, yes. which uh which uh which which email address did you use to RSCP for this event oh that's great can you uh and then like there you'd have to like, but, but buy, also, like also Amer- you'd sign up with both because then yeah. one of your like flatmates could come and you'd be like oh just exactly. use the other email cuz this was back in the period where i had like work friends and then i had like friends from college and like there was no overlap between the two but i was constantly yeah. trying to like smuggle my my college <laughs> friends into these like horrible parties because it's like this yeah. free beer god i oh man and that's but that's what's crazy is that like these south by southwest events are that but like with like two million dollar budgets and like the worst dj sets i have ever seen like in yeah, my life exactly it's absolutely madness and it's wild that people are like hey but it's cool because I spent a lot of money to be here. Now it's cool. It is the most Empress News Clothes things I've ever seen. I'm watching I'm I'm wait, I'm watching a video of a bunch of people doing the worst dancing I have ever seen. And yes, almost all of them are white. They are listening to the shittiest music I have ever heard. And the tweet is captioned Vibes Immaculate. <laughs> That's so good. <laughs> like what is this? Before we move on to this, I need to tell the story of how in London these things ended for like a full year. Uh, or certainly ended because oh. at this point I was still in sales, uh, well, advertising sales, and there was a party for a company who I will not name. I know the name. You know the it's name. great. <laughs> if, if you subscribe to us and you DM me, maybe I will tell you. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a, a large company involved in the internet and what the thing that they had among a bunch of these other things one of the things that they had was they had a photo booth and the photo booth photos were broadcast onto the wall in one of the other rooms and not everyone realized this meaning that i believe i believe uh the night ended with a woman being fired for flashing the camera and not realizing that it was public uh and yes. a 
relatively junior male employee doing a large quantity of cocaine in front of the camera, which was then broadcast <laughs> onto a wall in front of everyone. Which, yeah, uh, and I believe I, I believe that company did not have a party for a few years, um, but also it kind of slowed the whole thing. The down. events in New York eventually imploded, I think, because there was like around, I want to say like late 2012, maybe early 2013, there started to be like this entire class of weird man who would like show up from LinkedIn and like just like follow people around and they were like this they were like these weird intense men who like all started showing up to the same events and then very quickly like everyone was like I can't I can't come here anymore like if it's a public if it's a publicly listed event like I can't cuz the yeah. LinkedIn men will show up and they will ask me for jobs or follow women around it was really weird But that weirdness is a great segue into this week's main topic because we're going to be talking about the inherent weirdness of viewing, I guess, like the horrors of real life through the trivializing structures of the internet. That's a better way than I've ever put it. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. I had some time to think about it. Uh, We're talking about Luke's great concept of structural dissonance. So let's, uh, let's head over into the main segment. Let's do it. Okay, so you kind of gave us a quick definition, but to kick things off, talk about like what you would what you would say is like the first instance of structural dissonance as we're sort of defining it. Like, what's the the first big one? Well, I mean, I was gonna kind of explain the concept first because I think that's I think it's really important to get into the like why we're calling it what what we are, but also how it works. So, okay. The internet is, in many ways, a superstructure. In terms of every single thing on the internet creates a connection. And those connections are often severed, but they're also, they're more frequently not. So you liking something on Facebook, you tweeting something, you reading something, all of those connections exist on the internet in a way that hasn't really with like social interactions before. If you meet someone in the pub, you have a conversation with them, you go each other separate ways. At some point, you both forget about that and you never mention it. It, it disappears. It, it naturally fades. It doesn't happen on the internet. If you liked something, you know, 10 years ago, that thing stays liked. So yes. that is building a an informal structure, which combined across all the platforms, all the media, all the people, turns into a superstructure of, of, of just colossal size. But then this secondary structure on the internet is the form in which you consume content. So that is the way that everything is crushed down to specific sizes. Now, if you compare it to art, for example, you can go and see Guernica or the Mona Lisa. And those two things have completely, they have similar forms, but equally very different forms. Guernica is like, I don't know, 10 meters long. And the Mona Lisa is like two foot high. It's very small. It's pathetic. In it ways. is very small. It is a very yeah. small painting. Yeah. Yeah. So those two things have completely different forms. The problem on the internet is that that doesn't happen in the same way. You are listening to this podcast in the same way you would listen to BBC News Radio or Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan. Or, or, <laughs> or, yeah, yeah, exactly. 
Or, you know, if you really wanted, I'm sure the Azov Battalion in Ukraine have a podcast. Like, it seems like the sort of thing I, they have. I bet, yeah. Yeah, and they you have neo-Nazi stuff. And this all has the same form. And similarly, if you look at Facebook, you're like, your fun magician content where they uh, don't do something for five minutes and then eventually do it and it's disappointing. That is going to have the same functional form as a news report from Ukraine or a story about universal credit in the north of England or a story about the opioid crisis in uh, the United States. And all of these things ultimately have the same form. So it's all crushed into these boxes in a way that doesn't really, hasn't really happened before. And those are those two structures that join together and create this concept of structural dissonance, which is where the structures of the internet, both the informal structures of how everything links together and the formal structures of how you look at something in a specific way, conflict with the content, which creates this extremely uneasy feeling, which I think dissonance is the best way to describe it, where the things clash in a way that you can't quite describe and you couldn't pick the two out of each other, but at the same time, they make each other very uncomfortable by sitting as close and as interlinked there's as they one do. more. There's one more layer to this too, which I think is important to mention, which is that like, not only is the content dissonant in how it relates to each other and how it's presented next to each other or in the same feed or what have you, but we also are now, because of social platforms, conditioning how we communicate in a world where people are using content types or, or communication styles or presentation styles that fit a platform for lifestyle content, let's say, but they're using it to document war crimes. And, and yeah. th th this idea of like users purposely putting themselves in the box meant for something else, but using that to effectively transmit something that they shouldn't be or, or something that, they, they, that was never meant for that. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's part of the great democratization of the internet where everyone can use the internet for everything that they want to use it for. However, that means that, for example, you know, if, um, I don't know, the Ethiopian famine from the 80s, that now, that was only translated to the UK through horrifying pictures on TV. Now that would be translated through a bunch of different people because you would see people on the ground talking about it and it would be very, very real and very, very immediate and it would have this concept of, like, you don't look at something and say, well, that seems sad because it's on the news and now the news is over and I never have to think about it again. And the same goes for newspapers as well, actually, where if you're reading a newspaper, everything is packaged into the correct way that you're like, yes, now we'll turn the page to the features page where everything is lighthearted. And there's different there's different elements of this struggle, but it, and it's existed to a certain extent, but the democratization of social media has made it way, way more aggressive. Yeah, I think that sounds right. And it's like, it's not a new thing. This, this has sort of been going on since the minute there were places to post because like you really can't avoid structural dissonance unless you like make your own website to transmit some kind of message. Like you're going to inevitably be putting something in a place that someone didn't think about. Like, like if you're posting on a message board that was meant for like funny cartoons, but you're talking about your divorce because like you have friends on that message board, like that's, that's just what's going to happen because people, you know, a lot of like most people on the internet don't have the time or resources to make their own complete new uh, space to to convey whatever they need to convey. Yeah, exactly. And even then, you know, you're creating a thing that will be consumed next to a bunch of other things. Like you know, someone links to it on Twitter, and that again is is doing the thing. And if you're you're 
you know, someone says, this is an interesting website. It could be a website that is a really detailed and, you know, dark detailing of someone's divorce and how it made them feel. Or it could be a website that has like a cartoon goat that poops a lot. Like the two things could exist in the same thing and you, you're never going to, you you could land on either of exactly. them. Exactly. It's kind of the entire idea that 4chan is predicated on in yes. a weird way where it's like for the, the, the magic and the chaos and the horror of 4chan are all because of the fact that like it all jumbles it together uh, without any rhyme or reason really other than like vague topics like anime or guns or something or food. I mean, even 4chan, like once you're in 4chan, you understand where it is. You understand that the randomness is part of it, which I think is not necessarily the same on social platforms. Um, and if anything, I, I, in a way, the precursor to 4chan was something awful, which I think is is a really good point to start tracing the history of this, um, which you can talk about better than me, but the first instance of structural dissonance. Yeah, I'm fascinated by this. So there, I'll, I'll, I'll drop a link to uh, the archive in our show notes this week. And I've talked about this in Garbage Day as well, but there's an archive of something awful during 9-11, which is an absolutely wild thing to read through because it's the immediate minutes after the first plane hit one of the Twin Towers, but it's communicated in the style of something awful. So the very first thing is, just woke up after hearing a crash, there's a big ass hole in the World Trade Center and smoke's pouring out of it. My suite mates are freaking out. That kind of sucks. Edit. Here's some webcam pics. I mean, this is like this is the language of something awful, but they're they're talking about 9-11. And then there's something in all caps, shit, the other one is on fire. And then you read through it and it's I mean, one user named Dog Welder writes, Holy fucking shit, I just saw this on the news. That is a big fucking hole in the World Trade Center, sirs. And then the like the message board, um, like the forum signature. You remember those? Yep. Yeah. yeah his for, God, yeah. his his forum signature is Tyler Durden from Fight Club. You know, it's like it's, <laughs> it, an, another guy is posting more photos of the attack, and his forum signature is is a is a bleached anus like like it's it's i'm I'm trying not to laugh but it's like it's it's inherently ridiculous because things are moving so quickly that there's no there's no ability for these people to go make uh an appropriate place to share this stuff they're just sharing it where they hang out which is something awful so uh another another username leet hacksor writes what the fuck do you mean terrorists probably did caused the plane to crash into the World Trade Center. Now they got the World Trade Center just like they got Aaliyah, which I think is a reference to the singer Aaliyah's death. But it would I, be, I, yeah. It's been a long time since I've, I've gone down this whole archive. And like the whole, the, the whole archive is absolutely insane looking. And if you keep going, they, they're, they're updating it in real time and like by the minute in, in certain senses. One of my favorite kind of versions of this structural dissonance, though, is is from a user called BJ Paskoff. And his, or hers, could be either, his signature is like just fascinating. Because the message he says is, another plane, holy shit, nuke them. And his signature is, everyone needs a little BJ in their lives. <laughs> it's so grim. It's... Mm. It's but it's it's but it's it's also like in a weird way not grim because it's like it's extremely human in a weird way like it's ugly 
in the way humans are. But it, and it, it's, it's as you said, also where it's like it's a permanent fixture now. Like this thread in and of itself is so complex that like it's it has to be siloed off from the rest of the Internet. Like, I, you know, I always have to do a ton of prefacing when I send it to, to somebody because I'm like, hey, this is a tough thing to look at because it's it's such a dizzying mix of funny and sad and horrifying. But yeah. it's also kind of like I think in, in many ways the the clearest distillation of what social media is they're making fun of each other they're yelling at each other they're spreading conspiracy theories some of them are actually making like pretty good predictions of what's about to happen yeah it's 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 really good stuff and and i i've written about this as well this other sort of reference on garbage day so long-time readers forgive me for repeating myself but i really i really love this account so the science fiction author william gibson did an interview in 2019 with the new yorker where he described like a really similar experience of learning about 9-11 through a watch forum that he was a part of, like for collecting watches. Yeah. And the quote is, I went to get some coffee, and when I came back, there was a second post under the first, second plane hit, it wasn't an accident. And he he goes on in the interview to talk about how like this idea of learning about something so monumental through a wildly trivial and stupid place like a message board for collecting watches <laughs> like kind of broke his brain and like a lot of the books he's written since 2001 have been sort of dealing with what he talks about as like the otakufication of culture and how like everyone's view of reality will be through like extremely niche online portals and like one of the one of the things that you get with that kind of life is like you know the people who like learn about like hurricanes in the comments of Pornhub videos or you know like it's it's this thing where it's like if there's human communication happening it will eventually have to involve all forms of human communication so like yeah you're gonna have you're gonna have some really weird clashes I guess some really weird cognitive clashes would you say the weird structural dissonance I would say some weird structural dissonance and like what what I would love to hear from you because I feel like a lot of Americans don't kind of know this piece of it, but could you talk a little bit about the and I know this doesn't really totally line up, but I swear it will. Can you talk a little bit about the role of BlackBerry Messenger during the the London riots? Because I feel like this is oh, another really God. interesting example. Yeah. So. So the London riots were in were in 2011. I moved to London in, I think March 2011, and this was and and it was in August. Yeah, so I was like five six months in living in London, and I should emphasize it was a very very weird time. Like I remember being at work and them sending us home early at like two two p.m. because it was like everyone should probably just go now. We're not totally sure what's going to happen. Like it, it felt very on edge. It felt less on edge as the night went on because I spent the night in a pub, uh, the only pub that was open in Camden, uh, shout to Quinn's. <laughs> uh, and um, it was then broadly fine for me. It was not fine for everyone, but it was fine for me. But the, the, the specific role of it was that, that BBM or Blackberry Messenger at the time became a, it, it was, it was both an integral part of it and also sort of a scapegoat, which was, which was in retrospect, quite fascinating. The UK has always had slightly different technology than the US has had, and we've had it at different times. And broadly speaking, social media, so Facebook and Twitter, hadn't 
made the same penetration into the UK, partly because smartphones hadn't made the same penetration, but Blackberries had, and Blackberries at the time were very cheap, and you could get them. Uh, and BlackBerry Messenger is effectively, um, it's effectively Apple. Uh, what's the Apple text thing that we don't have in the UK? I-text. You have it. None of you use it. Right. iMessage. Oh, iMessage. Okay, so it was iMessage uh, or WhatsApp. It was. It had the same thing. Super easy to send. Super quick. Super low, uh, like data wise. So it was very easy to communicate. And that was broadly how it was communicated with. And the police absolutely missed this. Like utterly and completely missed this. The Facebook pages, the Twitter pages, that none of them had really any good information on. It was all organized. And I think organized is probably pushing it a little bit far. But it was broadly a covert social network, which was BlackBerry Messenger. (laughs) I mean, at the time, it was also really popular in, like, uh, United Arab Emirates and stuff like that. Like, it 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 was in that sort of space. Yeah, people were sending around messages and they were being forwarded very, very quickly and replied to and broadcast very, very quickly. And the police absolutely had no idea where they were looking. And this kind of feeds into this central idea where it was the first time, I think, that it felt it felt simultaneously organised and not organised. It felt very chaotic if you didn't know what was going on. And I specifically remember this, actually, because I was in, in Camden at the time, where the police in Camden, because they thought, on social media, on Facebook or Twitter, Camden was going to be the target. And then as the night went on, it vandalism kept popping up, popping up everywhere else. Like people would like loot shops in other bits of London. And slowly and slowly and slowly, the police in Camden got kind of drawn away. And then clearly there was a message, and I've, I've never proved this. Suddenly it was like, there's no police left in Camden. And suddenly a load of teens arrived in Camden to, to loot it. And, you know, it was honestly, it's one of these things where it was like, oh, it was a disaster. It was awful. Honestly, walking through it afterwards, it was basically fine. I remember I saw like two or three shops that were smashed in. And there was a bike shop down the end of the road that sort of stolen a bike. Like, it was very unpleasant for some people. There is a, sh- there is a stall I walked past you on the way to Tottenham Games that was destroyed by fire at the time. But broadly, it was not nearly as bad as it was at the time where everyone was saying, send in the police. Or, sorry, send, right. in, the, send in the army was the thing, um, which, yeah. If you ever want to find out the true politics of a British celebrity, go to their Twitter feed and search London riots and army. <laughs> and my God. Well, so the reason I wanted to bring up the London riots is because I, I find the London riots place in internet history deeply fascinating. And it's also like a really interesting example of this period of when structural dissonance becomes sort of like a defining feature of social media. So in I want to get I want to get the dates totally right here because it, it, we're going to jump around a little bit. But in December 2010, the Arab Spring sort of, by all accounts, officially kicks off in Tunisia, and the Arab Spring would last basically up until like May 2011. And the London riots are kind of placed like literally right after, which I find fascinating too. And one of the things that uh, was really fascinating about the Arab Spring and the use of social media, this was from a a Pew Research article where they did some analysis on bit.ly links. And they were basically, Mm. it's reading back on this, it's really funny because like, uh, it's so obvious reading this. And once again, like like Luke said, like the role of social media in the Arab Spring are not one-to-one. They're not totally, like one didn't, like Twitter did not cause that, right? There's all kinds of local regional reasons why different countries sort of rose up and had protests during that period of time. But here's a really interesting excerpt here. So, Research is emerging that re-examines in a more detailed way the role that social media played in the Arab uprisings. 
In July 2012, a report was published by the United States Institute of Peace based on an extensive content analysis of bit.ly links from the uprisings in Tunisia, Egypt, Libya, and Bahrain. <laughs> bit.ly links, or short URLs, are predominantly used in social media, such as Twitter. The authors came to some conclusions that countered the initial assumption that social media was a causal mechanism in the uprisings. Instead, the study suggests that the importance of social media was in communicating to the rest of the world what was happening on the ground during the uprisings. New or social media outlets that use bit.ly links are more likely to spread information outside of the region than inside it, acting like a megaphone more than a rallying cry, which I think is an interesting point to make, which is that like it, it may not have been what activists were using to organize on the ground in, in different Arab countries, but it was definitely a way to m multiply its its impact around the world. Yeah. It meant in that, it meant that every, way, everyone else around the world consumed it through it. It wasn't what was happening exactly. on the ground. And this, we would see sort of a similar effect of Occupy Wall Street, which is really interestingly enough, basically right after the London riots. So you have like this wave of protests across like the Arab world. Then you have the London riots. Then you have Occupy Wall Street. I find this period of time super fascinating yeah. because you had people like, putting really serious content on like a cartoon bird microblogging website. Yes, it, it was very strange. And you time. had people in London like organizing basically like, or let's say coordinating a riot or parts of a riot with Blackberry Messenger, which in America is synonymous with Kim Kardashian yes. at the time. And then you have Occupy Wall Street, which people forget this. It was launched as a Tumblr first. It yeah. was launched as a Tumblr and it was not a huge amount of people. It was... It was fairly big but it was not not a huge amount of people I, I i was there during one of the last uh days of it i was actually with all the people arrested on the brooklyn bridge if you watch you cnn footage yeah i was in jail for nine hours yeah if you nice. watch cnn footage uh from that day there is an aerial shot of me uh in, in a red blazer on the bridge but um <laughs> so i had to i had to tell my my boss at vice magazine at the time that i was sick but actually i had been in jail for nine hours so i'm sorry but that seems like an extremely vice thing to you could just say like, yeah, it was a risk. Yeah, but I was the, I was the receptionist. I wasn't a journalist. <laughs> I may have I may have not even been a receptionist yet. I may have just been an intern. Anyways, <laughs> but what I, what I think is really fascinating about this period of time is like that uh, those message board threads detailing uh, you know the horror of nine eleven in this really weird DSL internet era, like this piece by piece refreshing the page thing. Then like oh, almost ten years later, basically. We have the web 2.0 version of this, which is, you know, these early microblogging sites allowing us uh, incredible access to protest movements around the world and making them feel really weird because we're putting super serious content, whether it's about wealth inequality or it's about corruption or it's about, you know, the uh, police violence. We're putting that content on a site called Twitter, whose logo is like a cartoon bird. And like that is and it's up next to people's pictures of their lunch or like updates from like a dude's Google glass. And that's like a really weird thing that I feel like people don't think about the weirdness of anymore, but it is really weird. But you know, the next phase of this and the thing that made it incredibly strange and incredibly weird is when this did become a real thing, which was when Trump got elected because that was the moment That's that this, right. I think, kind of all of the stuff that had been building up just happened. And, yeah, and I think that all of the stuff that had been building up finally broke free. And what that was, was a person who had had their brain warped by this absolute insanity of, of living on this platform, 
became president and then suddenly forced us all to live in that reality for four years. We've talked about the the early stages of, of structural dissonance. Let's talk about the modern era of structural dissonance. Yeah. Looking back at the early days of the Trump presidency, it is relatively... It's it's tricky because on the one hand, it feels like maybe the Trump presidency wasn't nearly as bad as it felt at the time. But I think a huge part of that was the pure structural dissonance of those early days of seeing policies being fired out on Twitter. No consideration, no checking with Congress, no working out the best way to phrase it, just saying we are going to shut immigration from these countries down. That being, I think, maybe the most potent one. And this absolute insanity, because I remember also there was a Twitter account uh, that did, it automated taking Trump's tweets and putting them onto White House-headed paper. Yes. And it, it printed them out and said, like, as though it was an official missive from the White House, which I think really highlighted that absolute distance of what you were seeing just being like, oh, someone's going to rule via Twitter and we're going to see what that's like. He wasn't good at it, I don't think. But the, the entire sort of like Trump wing of the American right is built on this like very weird thing that like a lot of writers very early in Trump's campaign like couldn't figure out how to deal with because like they were essentially like weird internet nerds and Nazis who walked around acting like they were basically in like a racist version of Comic-Con. <laughs> yeah. And like that idea makes total sense on the internet. It's like, oh, I'm going to like make a Kekistan flag and I'm going to like go wear it to a meetup. That's like, that's like a total, that's like what Redditors used to do. That's like, like there was like an old joke on Tumblr there where it's like we could meet in public and use a code word to identify each other, which is I like your shoelaces. But now we see the same idea with like, hardcore extremists a couple of years later who are coming up with all kinds of nonsense words and using them to define themselves in real life. So what I, I, what I think is really fascinating about the Trump era is that not only do we get the structural dissonance of Trump's entire presidency taking place in between like celebrity news updates on Twitter and like v- random viral relatable memes. I mentioned, I, mentioned, the, I mentioned this last week, but there was a an extremely extended period of probably the two, first two, two and a half years of Trump's presidency, where if you're in the UK covering news, you used to wait for about 10 o'clock in the morning and you get his first tweet and you're like, oh, fuck, he's up. And it was like, yeah. it was a specific that. thing that we were like psychologically tied into when does the president wake up and start tweeting? And it was a nightmare. Dude, I had push alerts on. Yeah. Him. That was bad. It was awful. But like that period was also interesting because the structural dissonance of the internet, which had been around at that point for, you know, five or six years as like sort of like the defining feature following that period of time during the Occupy years, like that then started to leak out into real life. Yeah. And we started to get these bizarre, they were rallies. They were, they were like, they were far right rallies, but they looked like Reddit meetups. And, and oftentimes they were. (laughs) Like, like, let's, let's not be, let's be real here. Right. But it's interesting to me that this leads to the insurrection, which is like this moment when the, the bizarreness of consuming serious content on trivializing social platforms 
flips entirely. So you have like dudes smashing up Nancy Pelosi's office and live streaming it on like a gaming live stream platform called D live. Yeah. Which runs on crypto, you know, like it's, it's bizarre. They're the, the, the QAnon shaman. What is he, if not just structural dissonance? Yeah, no, it, it is the idea that, you know, in a different era, he would have had potentially different symbology, but the symbology that he did have was purely driven by what was online. I have a very specific memory of being at the, one of the Tommy Robinson rallies in London when he, kind of was his peak like 20 probably 2017 18 and going and realizing there was just like so many distinct groups there because they were the old school football hooligans who were there for bluntly to get like lagered up and have a good time uh, and yell about stuff yeah and then you'd get kind of a bunch of like internet debate bros who'd be like yeah actually i'm here because like i want to like talk to people and make witty remarks that aren't actually that witty and wear like a fucking trilby and then have a bunch of like weird like kekistan people who'd be there with this flag looking around and i just i remember vividly when because you also have like people jumping onto this whole thing uh and one of the ones that tried really hard to do it was generation identity and they never they never got anywhere really now we can no. get, we got a few years away and they, they got nowhere but i remember vividly them coming down and flying that kind of yellow flag with the black circle and the and the, the v in it and one of the kind of old school Tommy Robinson women who is next to me who clearly you know I don't know, went to Millwall a lot and fought people just went like oh, it's on the National Front to me and I was like no that's Generation Identity they're a, a far right group from uh, they're, they're just a far right group on the internet and she went oh, they're not supposed to be here this is not it and, she, and her like she stormed off and she left the protest as a result of kind oh, of wow. this of this like this very odd distance where it was I have my version of this that I've seen through my bit of the internet and we've organized this and it's like the Football Lads Alliance or whatever. And then there are other groups that organize in a totally different way and therefore couldn't understand the perspective of the other one, even though they essentially had the same beliefs. But there was a very weird conflict and it was created by this sense of people are consuming it through their own weird structures and therefore misunderstanding where it's come from. I actually, I had a similar experience going to uh, a Milo Yiannopoulos event in Boston. It was one of the last like far right events I went to and it was annoying. It was an extremely annoying day, but what was really fascinating was the event was organized by like, I don't want to say like typical Boston racists, but like, (laughs) like typical Boston racists, like dudes who like, like who are going to get hammered at a Red Sox game and shout like racist shit and like fake run for mayor every couple of years. And like everything to them is basically like a horrible's day parade, which I don't know if you know the concept of, but in Massachusetts in particular, we have them where like once a year, everyone gets together and just like dresses up like stuff from the news in a way to make fun of it and parades their children through town. Talking, talking about uh, uh, racism in New England. How is, how is, how is everyone feeling about uh, Tom Brady coming back? Well, that's not the, that's not the point of the, uh, this week's episode. So anyway, so like you have these guys who are like they're in their like late forties, early fifties. They've been kicking around like South Boston bars forever, yeah, and they yeah, suck yeah. ass and whatever. And but like you, like fine. Then you have Bailinopas who shows up looking like a complete nut job, and he brings his like whole crew of like like kind of the kind of far right influencer you don't see anymore. Like the people who believe in sort of the high camp aspects of this, yes. which kind of died a very quick death. Well, it died a quick death because people like my office got on stage and attempted to like settle weird media beefs as like a load yeah. of fo- terrifying football hooligans stood around and were like, we, we want to fight someone. 
Yeah, and then like with him were Proud Boys, including Ter- like uh, Terio, who like pulled a knife on people. Which is, and which, then you had also, like, the Proud Boys have an element of pretty high camp to them. Well, sure. In the way that, like, if you get more than three men together, like, they're all going to do something weird together. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, in this case, like, all get indicted for conspiracy. But, sure. like, then you also had, like, weird internet nerds who were extremely excited to, like, go outside and talk about Pepe the Frog. And, like, I talked to a bunch of dudes, like, dressed like Pepe, and I was like, why are you here? And they're like, well, because, like, I love memes and I love 4chan. And, they, like, they they thought they were there for, like, a cultural thing. I, I'm not yeah. saying they're not racist, but I'm saying that, like, they viewed it as that. And then you had, like, you know, Boston has, like, one of the older punk scenes in America. So you had, like, full-on black block anti-fascists who were there to, like, throw piss and kick shit, you know? Like, they yeah. were there to, like kill people (laughs) and like and so what was super fascinating was like watching the old school boston races who had never really i don't think they i don't think they really understood the kind of event that they it's kind of i don't want to i don't want to i don't want to apologize for them because i i think that they're awful and like what they did was awful but i don't think they understood the context of the groups that they brought together meanwhile the anti-fascists in boston absolutely understood the context and they were ready to like they were ready to kick them out of town and yeah. so it was just a, it was a day of just internet bubbles that didn't make any sense really like hitting against each other. Yeah, exactly. And to bring this back to the the initial concept, what this means is you end up with a load of people who are at events like this or consuming events like this uh who are consuming it through a completely messed up frame because they are looking at this and they are saying, "Wow, there's a massive thing here on my video screen on my phone." And therefore, it is a more impactful thing than necessary is. And it's become a real problem in London because London has a lot of protests. Like we, There's always a protest and everything is big and everything's the biggest protest. But now what you get is you get everyone going there and everyone's live streaming. Everyone's got like blocks of SIM cards that they're trying to live stream from their phone from. And like one in three people are live streaming. It's like, there's like 10,000 people in this march. Like, why do we need 3,000 live streams? And <laughs> right. it's it's absolutely mad. But it's also because people are no longer the structural distance has grown so big that they no longer understand the things that they're saying as ideology and they understand it purely as content. And therefore yes. they are trying to set it into a form that they understand, which is typically a live stream. But it's it's different sometimes. Maybe it's a live tweet, maybe maybe it's a live tweet thread, maybe it's a, a Facebook live, maybe it's a, a TikTok live, maybe it's just a recorded TikToks. But everyone is setting this stuff into the form that they understand, while not necessarily appreciating that the content is not the same. And it's this and they're flattening fit, Yes. It's flattened. Yes. It flattens everything. And what this ultimately leads to is a situation like Ukraine where everything is flattened into entertainment and war is flattened into entertainment. Let's let's talk about Ukraine. So I want to start with a tweet that I was sent last night that I cannot shake. Okay. So the tweet is about the subreddit Volunteers for Ukraine. Uh, Two days ago, a Russian airstrike hit a Ukrainian training facility. And Emerson T. Brooking, who is a resident senior fellow for the Atlantic Council's DFR lab, tweeted a collection of words that I I think will haunt me for the rest of my life, which is, 
Yesterday's Russian airstrike on a Ukrainian training facility may have been the single largest mass casualty event to affect a single subreddit. Yeah. Which the idea of mass casualty event affecting a single subreddit is like is really doing my head in because I've just never cons- I've never thought on those terms before and 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 if you if you go into the subreddit today uh, or this week, it, it is really dark. It, it is it is a super dark mood because there was this going off to war to defend Ukraine kind of hype train. This like this very typical internet hype train that you would see with a horrible South by Southwest W three party or any other kind of meme cycle on the internet, but it's applied to war, and inevitably the hype cycle has ended with something horrifying. And now all the users are fighting with each other about whether they should be there in the first place or if they should all go home or were they tricked into going. Or if they're Russian disinformation. Or if they're they're Russian disinformation. Are they mercenaries? Why are you here? There's there's just – it's a mess. It's an absolute mess. And it it is really hard to, I think, psychologically wrap your head around because Reddit is like the website that I go to to read like whether or not someone's the asshole and get updates on Pokemon Go. And yeah. yet I'm also following the subreddit, which is giving me updates on like guys who are going to fight in Ukraine. Yeah, or not going to fight in Ukraine, but are talking about guys who are going to fight in Ukraine, which, yeah, it's, it's the whole thing is, is, is extremely unnerving in a way that, yeah, it's hard to put your finger on, but it's ultimately this central concept of structural dissonance where you should not be following a Reddit thread of someone who's like, hey man, my base got blown up last night. What up? And like then explain to people like yeah no here's how the war's going like it's going okay but a lot of the the fighters are leave the foreign legion are leaving because they're not it's not quite what they thought it was going to be and it's it's madness it is absolutely madness and it feels it feels very hard to conceptualize because i can as a bit of like an insight into a newsroom thing like what we're obviously talking about a lot is kind of you know, what's reliable, where's good information coming from, and, you know, you have someone who's reliable for the first week, and then you suddenly notice they're going a bit off the reservation, like, mm, okay, I'm gonna... Yeah, that's happening to a couple of people I'm following yeah. right now, where the first week they were great, and now they're just threading hundreds of tweets together that are just not really hitting the mark anymore. Yeah. COVID was similar, actually. You yeah, know, speaking exactly. of... Everyone, everyone could kind of only hold it for so long but what you're also then looking at is you you because all this stuff is bubbling up from a bunch of directions you're trying to verify and certain amount you can verify like i'm I'm a reporter i'm not an editor i'm not anything uh i am trying to kind of say like hey i've seen this thing it looks real i think it's real we should talk to this person i don't know how to functionally be like hey this guy on reddit uh says he a cruise missile hit his barracks last night uh he says he's from birmingham and like none of that makes any sense to me and it is not an okay thing like the the idea of comparing these people who have gone to ukraine some of which it should be a higher proportion than you would think would are clearly on the far right which will isn't another issue that's going to come more in the future but a bunch of these people are going to ukraine to have these to join the war while um you're kind of looking at them and trying to understand okay but are you uh, uh, like a what what background do you come from and b why are you doing this how do i understand this how do i understand you as a person going to this because i know that looking at your your profile you used to work in greg's right 
it doesn't match up to kind of your mental image of, for example, the Spanish Civil War. For Americans, Greg's is uh, the closest the Brits have to Dunkin' Donuts. Yes. It's great. So obviously a lot's been made of like the TikTok girls who are doing sort of like lifestyle content with like bombed out buildings and war crimes. But I wanted to show you something that is so structurally dissonant that I haven't even been able to include it in a garbage day issue because it requires so much context and discussion. And it lives in such a, a, a an internet native gray area that like, I don't know what to do with it. And yet I can't stop watching it. All right. Hit me. So this is a YouTuber. His name is Willie Beating Cancer. <laughs> he is a, a an Australian soldier who fought in Afghanistan he was diagnosed with an inoperable and terminal brain tumor, which I have researched. This is, re- according to every source I can find, this is real. He started vlogging through his terminal diagnosis to sort of deal with it. He then started traveling and doing like more like outrageous things on like a bucket list kind of journey. And then basically, like a month ago, he booked a one way trip to Ukraine, hearing that there might be war. And has been vlogging updates from Ukraine and did a whole thing crossing the border. He bought a a car with Bitcoin yesterday. And I genuinely don't know what to to do emotionally with this channel. And yet I can't can't not say that it's not captivating stuff, but it's absolutely mind-blowing. Like the whole thing is just, I I don't know what to make of it. Yeah, this is... This is unreal. I've never seen anything. I've truly never seen anything like it. And I don't know how to talk about it other than to be like, have you seen like, do, I, I, just, I, I don't, it might be the most structurally dissonant thing I've ever seen. Actually beyond the cute, like the cute girl, TikTok filter, travel vlogger footage from Kiev beyond the Reddit drama around joining the Ukrainian foreign legion. This I, I struggle with because I don't know how to deal with it. I don't know how to talk about it. I don't know how to think about it. Yeah, it's it's also because it is not purely structurally dissonant. It is not short. It is not someone making a weird thing where they kind of go, oh, hey, here's the, the bomb that's landed in my living room or whatever. It is just a guy living, living through it and just... This is so strange because it is not, yeah, it's not fun. And I think that weirdly emphasizes it where it's just someone being like, hey, I have terminal or serious cancer. I'm just going to kind of go through this. And I think that weirdly makes it more dissonant. And I don't quite understand how that works in my head. But yeah, this is... Because he didn't go fight. He went to just go. And then I read a story where he like, he linked up with another Australian who was over there taking photographs. They did cross the border. I think, I think they're out of Ukraine, but like the whole presentation of like, this is a guy with cancer and he's going to do his bucket list. It's like, okay, that's like pretty dark, but like, I get it. And then there's the second layer where it's like, I'm now in Ukraine, which is being actively shelled by Russia. And it's like, well, why, why are you, why are you there? Like, and then the fact that he's like going viral. So he's clearly doing more con like he, he had a video that his his crossing the Ukraine Poland border video, which is also titled What the Media Aren't Showing, has yeah. 1.6 million views. So now he's making more content about this. And it's like I also went further back in his channel and like 
he's got some anti-vax stuff in there that's a little uncomfortable. Um, or not quite anti-vax, but like he's got some stuff in there that like I'm not super big. So it's not like I can even go and be like, check out this channel. This is like I it's not journalism either. Like I don't know what it is. <laughs> and it's it's breaking my brain. I I tried to reach out to him, but he didn't he didn't get back to me. The obvious comparison is like kind of disaster tourism stuff. Like and it, it has happened before. Like it's always known that people fly to these areas to go and gawk, basically. It used to be the the province of I mean, maybe, maybe this is it. Because I was going to say it used to be the province of, of like wealthy aristocrats who would go and look at things and be like, well, this seems awful. I will go, now go to a nicer place. But maybe now it's just that there is such a wide gap between the, I want to say the Western world, but obviously the slightly different ones, Australia, but the, the, the more developed and less economically developed countries that the more economically developed ones can go, yeah, fine, we'll do this. And this is a laugh. Whereas... Yeah, the obvious comparison of a lot of this stuff, as you mentioned, was the kind of, it's kind of the like Spanish Civil War stuff where people went to Spain, but it was like a journey. It was hard. You had to like, it took like a week to get there. And then you went to fight in the war and it was grim. And you got nothing from it except the fact that you're like, yeah, I did that. Whereas now you can just go and you don't have to even have to fight. You can just say, hey, here's my, here's my channel. Uh, this seems fun. And it creates this... I mean, yeah, this is the whole point of a structured distance is that there is a huge amount of mediacy. There's a huge amount of, I don't say aggressive contextualization, but it is a, there's a huge amount of context added to everything in a different way in that you're not getting an isolated report anymore. You're seeing something from someone and you know a bunch of things about them that immediately and a bunch of things about, a bunch of things about where they are. And as a result, you are kind of given simultaneously too much and not enough information yes yeah because you, you you're basically given access to someone's life stream but then you're given access to it in like an extremely atomized and like and like very like temporary way so you're you know like there are people on the ground in ukraine right now who are essentially you know they might say that they're independent journalists but some of them are just they're basically content creators funded with patreon money there's mm. more than a few there. I don't want to say that like they shouldn't be there. That is not really my decision. I'm not like a, a a journalism ethics person. I don't really care. I think it is questionable to go to an active war zone and tweet through it. Yeah. I think it is also questionable to eat food and drink water in an area that is increasingly not having access to basic necessities and it being one more mouth to feed or, or care for, I think is, is an issue being a liability for security yep. is an issue. I think if you're going to tweet through a war zone, like you should probably have at least someone with you to tell you what you can and can't tweet that would maybe get you blown up. Yes. There's all kinds of sort of complications there, but those people are doing that with this massive data trail, and yet they're also doing it via tweets, which only have 100, 200 characters, 300 characters at most with a link and a picture and maybe a short video. Like, this isn't like, this isn't 24 7, 360 access. This is like short viral bursts of content trying to cover an event that is way too large to fit into a tweet or, yeah. a, th or a tweet thread. And this also matches to people who are there because they are Ukrainian. Like because there's this right, city, yes. which is 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 another element of this where it is incredibly strange to see it, but it also means that it's filtered through. And this is, I think, where social distance becomes incredibly dangerous. Which is, 
where your classic response to a seeing or a horrendous war crime, a a a, a tragedy, a a, a uh, yeah, just this stream of human misery, is that the response is a uh, quote tweet slash prayers for Ukraine, and it formalizes it into a way which it is both the only way they can get their message out in many cases, and explain to people what is happening there. But simultaneously, it's the only it is the most trivializing way to do it and it's not a this is not like a criticism of them this is not a criticism of why they're doing or how they're doing it it is a it is a it's not even a criticism only i don't think it is a saying that the the structures that exist mean that it is impossible it is simultaneously the most effective way to see something and the least effective way to do anything about it and there is this yeah. stretch yes. of of incredible unpleasantness of watching this stuff and knowing that you both see more than ever before and it's worse than ever before and even through seeing it it is formalized into a set of standardized content things whether that is inspirational content whether that is uh uh misery porn whether that is you know boys with guns stuff all of this is formalized into a series of content that have a specific calibrated responses to them because they are formalized into content that already exists and therefore we know the response and we don't need to do anything different and that is i think the the tragedy of how we ended up here yeah i mean i think there's also one last boogie band to sort of discuss with this before we we wrap and kind of close things for now which is that like it didn't like the, the internet landscape didn't have to look like this like no Companies built websites that they ask for our content for, you know, like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, they, they ask for our content and they, they ask us to package it in ways that are palatable and entertaining and fun and light. So you have Instagram and you have Twitter and you TikTok, like fun dances and lifestyle influencers and uh, celebrities and trending topics and memes. Yeah. You know, and it's not an accident that most of these platforms like became popular at the peak of like planking and like grumpy cat and all that shit. But th they've become too important now to put content anywhere else. So, you know, if you are a country like Ukraine who desperately needs international help in a crisis of this magnitude, you're going to go to the cartoon bird site. And yeah. you're gonna use it as best you can. You're gonna make memes, and you're gonna you're gonna share viral videos of men with tractors stealing tanks, which are extremely funny. They and are you are going funny. to like, you're gonna have your president like vlog through it. Yeah. And you're you're gonna use these things. You're gonna have your travel influencers posting TikToks, and you're gonna you're gonna become a beacon for content creators to go there because. Those are the fucked up incentives of the of the corporate platforms that we use. And so you you're gonna have this structurally dissonant perception of reality because like there's no time in an event like this to find a better way to do it. And there's kind of no better way to do it anymore. This is it. Like, you know, a TV station or a radio station are not gonna give you the access to people that the funny bird site or the no nipple photo app are going to give you or like the 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 ai based dance feed 
Like, like these are all places that are better than a TV station or, or a radio station. Yeah. Which means like everything gets jumbled up and scrambled and flattened. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Speaking of structural dissonance, do you want to go talk about Batman? No, oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah, I mean, this is the worst part of this, isn't it? Hey, Luke, did you consume any content to stay sane this week? Yeah, I can see the Batman. Me too. Ugh. All right, let's go talk about Before it. Before we put it behind a paywall, uh, give it a rating out of five for people. Like a one. Really? Interesting. I fucking hate it. And I, the further... Wow. Yeah, okay, we can talk about this behind the paywall, but yes, I'm not a fan. I would have... I, I, I would give it a 3.5, but I would have given it a 4.5 if it was two different movies. <laughs> okay. Uh, all right, well, let's go do that. Um, thank you guys for listening. Hopefully... This episode wasn't a massive bummer, <laughs> but also like, you know what? Like podcasts don't have structural dissonance if you don't want them to. Like you don't have to listen to this show surrounded by other fun podcasts. Uh, you could take take a day and listen to it on its own. I don't know. Uh, but thank you for supporting the show. If you don't subscribe, consider subscribing. You can do that at thecontentminds.com slash subscribe, which is so much easier than having to send people to a million different websites to do that. Thank you, Seven Morris, for editing this week's episode and providing the lovely soundscapes that you're now hearing in your ear holes. And uh, this week, leave a comment or a review or uh, a, a rating on your platform of choice or our website as if you were... Oh, boy. This is actually... Uh... This, is, this is bleak. Hold on. No, we can make this fun. Wait, no. Hang on, hang on. As, as if you were someone reviewing a web three event in austin at south by southwest oh yeah okay yeah do that comment as if you're attending a web three event in austin uh i hope the vibes are immaculate <laughs> bye guys <laughs> <laughs>